0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Egg Restaurant, located at 109 North 3rd Street in Brooklyn, New York. For more information, visit eggrestaurant.com.
0: I'm Michael Calameco from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hey, and welcome to the food scene on heritage Radio i'm your host michael Harlan Turkell here today with fuchsia dunlop and i was just telling you right before the show that you you are one of those authors that i actually have a fuchsia stack i, I have you know multiple i how many is it five books now Six?
3: five books yeah. yes.
2: i mean i i have that and they they are not thin books and it's, it's its own tower in, in the stack of books around my house. Um, I've long been obsessed with Chinese food being a New York Jew. And, you know, there, there is Chinatown, Christmas time. I, I want to get your perception of what Chinatown, New York, is like.
3: Well, um, for me, it's very exciting because it's much, much bigger than London Chinatown, which, of course, is my local. And also, it has a very different sort of ethnic makeup. So aside from the kind of Cantonese, which we also have to an extent in London, you've got a bit of Shanghainese going on. And there are all kinds of ingredients that we can't get in London, like live yellow eels, paddy eels, huangshan, and various kinds of fish and, um, you know, Shanghainese um, sort of wine marinades ingredients and candied osmanthus flowers oh. and things like that. And you also have a fantastic range of seafood and dried seafood, sort of Hong Kong style and fresh greens also that we don't have in London. So I'm always very interested to be there.
2: But do you find that Chinatowns start with Cantonese and then eventually move into something else, usually Sichuan?
3: Well, I think that um, the Cantonese had a kind of stranglehold on Chinese food in America and in Britain for a long time, just because they were the earliest mass immigrants, and they kind of built Chinatowns, and and they opened all the businesses. Um, And what's happened is over more recent years, there have been waves of immigrants and visitors and students from other parts of China, and they have their own gastronomic requirements. And so you have businesses opening to satisfy them. Um, And it's very interesting in London, and I think also in New York, that um, um <laughs> Cantonese is no longer the language of Chinatown only. I mean, you also hear speak, people speaking Mandarin. People can converse in Mandarin. So it is a sort of progression. But it's very interesting the way, um, you know, whereas, you know, an American or British person 10 years ago might have been more likely to think of Chinese cuisine as being this monolithic cuisine, which was kind of based on the Cantonese model that we all know. Actually, now it's a, getting more inescapable that it's a vast country with lots of regional flavors and as you said Sichuanese so trendy in China from the kind of late 90s onwards and that's kind of rippled out into Chinatown's abroad.
2: So in, in the late 90s when Sichuan was kind of you know having its manifest destiny uh, you know across the world um, that's when you were there attending school. When, when did your obsession with Chinese culture and cuisine start?
3: Oh, well, I first got interested in China, I guess, in the early 90s, and I went to live and study in Sichuan in 1994. And that's when, I mean, that was kind of life-changing year, obviously, and I got completely hooked, seduced by the local cuisine, and ended up enrolling in a chef school there. So I suppose it was just sort of that experience of living in the middle of Sichuan, being surrounded by all this wonderful food and amazing produce that I could never have dreamed of at home in London. Yeah.
2: So, Land of Plenty. And we we were also joking before about writing books that you, you during college, were never the one to hand something in on time. No, uh, no, I was
3: tremendously lazy and hated writing essays, and I would never have imagined I would become a professional writer. So,
2: what was it about Land of Plenty that drove you to complete that book?
3: Um... Well, I suppose that living in Sichuan, um, I was just, you know, it was right before my eyes, this exceptional cuisine that um, really was remarkably unknown in the West. And um, so I just did what I'd done actually since I was a teenager without really thinking about it, which was I kept a journal and I, it ended up being full of recipes and descriptions of meals and menus. Um, so I was sort of collecting material before I was even thinking, long before I was thinking of writing a book. And then um, when I... I can't remember exactly which point I decided to write a book, um, although I, wrote, I mentioned the intention in a letter to my parents, <laughs> which I found the other day. Yeah. But at some point, I was sort of amassing all this material and learning about it, and thought this is something that people back home should really know about. And um, so I, I was sort of in in China at that point for something like a year and a half, two years. And at the end of it, I went home with the intention of trying to write this book. Um, so I sent proposals to six publishers, and they all rejected it. And they said, "Oh, no one is going to be interested in a Chinese regional cuisine. It's too narrow." And I was thinking, you know, Sichuan is the size of France, yeah. and it has a great cuisine. Hard to imagine now. But then a year later, I um, I sort of spent quite some time writing a really good proposal, and I g- gave it to two publishers, and actually they both wanted it. So that's how it happened.
2: Then Revolutionary Chinese Cookbook was more about Hunanese. Um, and, you know, we're, we're here today because there's jendeng, uh, an area which... I mean, I was aware of some of the food, but not exactly where it sits, because when you hear about that region, you hear Shanghai and not the rest. So can you paint a picture what kind of you know, metropolis Shanghai is versus the rest of that region?
3: OK, so what we're talking about, the Jiangnan region, which literally means south of the river, south of the Yangtze River. And it's a sort of pocket on the eastern sort of coastal area of China involving, including Jiangsu and Zhejiang provinces, a bit of Anhui province and Shanghai. Um, so Shanghai is the, the best known, you know, everyone's heard of Shanghai. It's having this great glamorous international moment again at the moment. Um, but Shanghai is a kind of upstart um, Um, in Chinese gastronomic terms it's a very modern city which only rose to prominence sort of in the 19th century and long before that there were great centres of food culture in this region like Hangzhou, um, the capital of Zhejiang province which has had a flourishing restaurant scene for some 800 years Um, Yangzhou, the old capital of the salt trade which was immensely rich until sort of really uh, around the sort of late 19th century when Shanghai took over. Um, And Shaoxing, another very ancient cultural centre, which we all know about from Shaoxing wine, but also has a fascinating tradition of gastronomy. So it's an incredibly rich region. You know, when people talk about Chinese regional cuisines, this is often this way of talking about four great regional cuisines, you know, Sichuanese in the west, Cantonese in the south, in the north, you have all the breads and noodles, the sort of Beijing Shandong cuisine. And in the East, like, there's this great cuisine. But in the West, remarkably little has been written about it in English, which is quite funny, really, because in some ways it's the Chinese cuisine. It's the most esteemed, the most sort of rich in cultural terms, arguably. I mean, it's a really amazing center of gastronomy.
2: There, There, there is a phrase, Qingdao. Uh, Q-U-I-N-G. Uh, Qingdan. Qingdan. Yeah, I knew this This whole show would it would have to be reinterpreted. But... You joke that it was often interpreted as like bland or insipid in English, um, but it really means something much more. Yes.
3: Well, the flavours of the Jiangnan region are often described as Qingdan, and that literally means pure and light in Chinese, those two characters together. But in English, as you say, it's often translated as insipid and bland, so it makes it sound absolutely deathly dull, boring flavours. But actually, in Chinese, it conjures up a wonderful image of sort of delicate, soothing flavors that sort of calm the spirits, very healthy and balanced. And so that's, you know, that's the way people often characterize the flavors of Jiangnan. It's real feel-good food. It's really comforting. But that's not to say that all the flavors are very gentle, because you have, you know, red braising, these gorgeous dishes, the best known of which is red braised pork, where you you cooking ingredients with really good soy sauce, rice wine and sugar and you end up with these rich dark glossy sauces. And you also have drunken dishes flavoured with Shaoxing wine and some wonderful funky fermented foods like dried fish, like jinhua ham, some very interesting pickled vegetables. So like, like any, you know, in the Jiangnan region, as with any part of China, a good meal is always about variety and about sort of tempting and enlivening the palate. It's just that you don't get the sort of dramatic highs and lows of Sichuanese cooking. It's more sort of gentle progression but it's equally you know interesting
2: yeah and it's all you know imbued in one way or another with meat it seems uh there's a hysterical phrase in there again i won't be able to pronounce it but it means that vegetarian ingredients are cooked meatily
3: oh yes yeah yeah and and what that is is as you say it's um what it is is taking vegetarian ingredients so vegetables or tofu perhaps and using meat more as a flavor principle than a main ingredient so you might for example cook fresh seasonal greens with a little chicken stock um, or cook them in lard or add a little ham or some dried shrimps to a vegetable dish so what happens is that you get vegetables which are healthy and light and so on but they taste fabulous so I you know in my opinion you really you know in this phrase become notorious recently in britain you can have your cake and eat it because you can eat in a healthy and sort of more ethical and sustainable way but it's still amazingly satisfying
2: yeah i mean it's very different than red braised pork because the slick of oil that comes out of that i mean it's some of the most beautiful stuff to then take and cook with as well um This region of Chinese cuisine, as you were saying before, does have this great breadth of of ingredients. But, you know, we we take it for granted because we think bok choy. Uh, We think lotus root?
3: I, I, well I would say that um, you know leafy greens are very important, lots of varieties of brassica like pak Choi. and also um, this region has a really watery landscape of um, lakes and rivers and canals so they eat lots of sort of plants grown in ponds and in the water, not just lotus, lotus root but also water chestnuts, wild rice stem also known as water bamboo and various other water plants but no they are sort of, you know, vegetables are just more modest, aren't they? It's, it's sort of the meaty things that get all the attention. But actually, vegetables, by all accounts, are what we should be eating more of. And in Chinese hands, they can be fabulously delicious. I mean, you don't eat your greens in China out of duty. You do it because they taste delicious.
2: Well, I mean, let's take uh, the lotus root, for example, too, because it has this uh, ability to use the seeds, use the leaves, use the stem. I mean, it's so multifunctional.
3: Yeah, it's a remarkable plant. It's also a symbol of Buddhist purity because of the way these ethereal white blossoms grow out of the mud. Um, Yes, and and Chinese cooks look at every part of it and think, you know, what are its qualities, how to use it. So um, the leaves have a wonderful fragrance and you can use them for wrapping up parcels of pork and steaming them, for example. Um, The stem has this delicious crunchiness to it. Um, So, um, you know, you can bring that out by stir frying it, Or you can slow stuff it with glutinous rice and slow cook it and make it into a sweet dish. And in Hangzhou, they also um, take out the starch from the lotus root. And um, then you can add water to it and make a sort of glassy porridge, sprinkle it with um, dried fruits, candied fruits and nuts and things and sugar. And um, it's a famous snack on the West Lake at Hangzhou.
2: These dishes that we were talking about before, you know, the Red Park or or using Shaoxing wine, um, have they become these ingredients that you have seen exported outside of that area of China and and influences other regions as well? Like, do you see it in Hunanese cuisine? Do you see it in Sichuan?
3: Well, um, certainly Shaoxing wine is quite widely available, and people use Shaoxing wine or wines that are very like it. Um, not really is a major flavor in other regions, but in marinades and so on, in the processing of foods. Um, and the Jinhua ham is very famous. It's quite an expensive ingredient. So it's used more in banquet cookery, um, for example, sometimes in the Cantonese South. And also because in the past, um, you know, the food of the Jiangnan region, you know, it was really elite cuisine. So it's, it's played a part in the cooking of Chinese diplomacy, state banquets, and so on. And in the past, this sort of official Mandarin class, these sort of very educated men who would serve office in various parts of the country, sort of seemed to have taken some of the influence of the, this cuisine around China. So in Sichuanese high cuisine, you see some influences from the Jiangnan region.
2: Yeah, so, but it wasn't as internationalized as you see like char sweet pork or... I mean, it hasn't gotten to that level yet, but, I mean, with the help of your book, we we certainly hope that it does.
3: Yeah, and certainly outside China, it's a very neglected region. Um, And it's partly, I think, that they haven't had the kind of waves of mass immigration, um, like the Cantonese, of people opening small businesses and restaurants. And also just because um, no one has really agreed on what to call the cuisine of the region. There's been different names, sometimes Huayang cooking, one of the four great cuisines, but that seems a bit old Fashion now, sometimes Su cuisine based on Jiangsu province, and now you've got other pro- Zhejiang province clamoring for attention on its own. So it's not like Sichuanese where there's one term that everyone agrees just sums up this region's well, cuisine. I thought
2: there was a term, and I thought that was the land of rice and fish or fish and rice.
3: Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> Yumi Zhixiang, land of fish and rice. Yeah. It's a kind of poetic term meaning a land of abundance and meaning that um, you know it's a place where food has always been plentiful but um yeah it's not so much a description of this specific region's cuisine as a poetic idea of this kind of land of plenty
2: yeah but i mean the description itself is in your book land of fish and rice that everyone should get and then travel to that region only to internationalize and export these wonderful recipes and cooking ideas around the world we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back
1: Today's program is brought to you by Egg Restaurant. For over 10 years, Egg has focused on making the best breakfasts in New York with a menu that combines southern-inflected classics like biscuit grits and country ham with dishes like duck hash, chorizo, and eggs, pancakes dripping with Vermont maple syrup, and more vegetables than you ever dreamed of eating before noon. But what gets them up every morning at Egg is something different. It's the chance to improve everything they encounter, the lives of the people who work with them, the lives of their customers, the health of their local economy, and the soil their food is grown in. Their interest in food goes way beyond what they put on your plate. Food touches on everything they care about, flavor, health, social justice, art and literature, agriculture, and ecology. It's one of the reasons Egg Restaurant is so happy to support Heritage Radio, who digs into everything that matters every week.
2: For more information, visit eggrestaurant.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harland-Turkel, here today with Fuchsia Dunlop, the land of fish and rice. And we were talking about, you know, so many different dishes in in that region, but there are a couple in specific that I I really wanted to highlight. You know, tofu is a kind of a ubiquitous ingredient uh, all throughout China and, and that area of Asia. But there was something that kind of stuck out to me, and it was these tofu slivers uh using you know not the soft but a smoked a harder tofu um is is it a salad what, i mean what part of day uh is, is someone going to eat tofu slivers
3: oh well in yangzhou uh, there's a, a wonderful res- recipe tangansr blanched tofu slivers and um, it's a very famous dish that you might often have for breakfast there so it's made with tofu which has been pressed to a firmness so you can cut it and young joe chefs are famous for their knife work and so there's a real art to cutting a block of tofu into very even matchstick thin strands and then it's sort of dressed in a bit of fragrant oil a bit of ginger a sort of seasoned soy sauce and it's a lovely healthy start to the day so you might have have that with, um, you know, a few steamed buns with different fillings or some rice congee for your breakfast.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to, well, being from New York and experiencing Chinatown like tofus, uh, uh, thinking of it as a textural thing. Yes, I see fried tofu here, but the, the slivers, I don't know. In in this way, they just stuck out to me. It's uh, such a wonderful garnish, as even though it's a dish in it of itself. Uh, another one is uh, fish and vinegar sauce.
3: you know, being a
2: vinegar fan, I'm always drawn to that sweet and sour.
3: Yeah, Xihu Tsuyu, That's the Hangzhou West Lake fish in vinegar sauce. And um, what it is, is it's made traditionally with a kind of carp from the West Lake in Hangzhou. Uh, But you can make it with other fish. I've done it in London with sea bass. And the fish is actually boiled, not fried. Um, So they, they boil it so that the flesh has a little tautness to it, which Chinese people really like. They call it sort of lively meat you know it's just got a little bit of 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 bite to it um and then you make a sauce which is vinegar and sugar and ginger so it's a kind of um sweet and sour sauce but there's no oil in it and it's not that kind of lurid red color of many sweet sour sauces made with colorings or made with tomato puree tomato paste um it's just a lovely, refreshing dish with this gorgeous vinegar sauce. And there's a very nice story about it, actually. Many of the dishes in the Jiangnan region have stories attached to them. And this is about sort of in days gone by, two fisherman brothers and one of them and, and, and one of their wife. And um, the elder brother was beaten to death by a corrupt official. And his younger brother. So, this isn't brother, a happy story. <laughs> no. <well> it, <laughs> and the younger brother had to leave Hangzhou in a rush. And the night before he left, his sister in law cooked him this beautiful fish in a sweet sour vinegar sauce. And she said, This is to remind you of the sweetness and bitterness of life. And you must come back one day to Hangzhou and remember. Years later, he came back to Hangzhou, having established his career somewhere else. And he um, had dinner in a grand house in the city. And one of the dishes was this beautiful. Beautiful fish which really reminded him of that last supper and it turned out that his long-lost sister-in-law was the household chef of the family and they were reunited and it was all this very happy ending so
2: you, you know you hear the term sweet and sour and you, you can think of that you know happiness and sad in the same place but sweet and sour for me expresses this liveliness uh, um, you know living to the fullest extent because it's so sapid and it, you know such a zing on your tongue. Um, so I love that the story had a happy ending after such a you know crazy beginning. But it, it, it's something like that sauce, uh, something as simple as you know vinegar, sugar, and ginger that you can transport. You know Not everyone can get Westlake carp around the world. but what do you think uh, in this book? what recipes, what techniques are you hoping that people will bring into their home kitchens?
3: Um, Well, I think um, red braising is just a fantastic method. Um, Delicious, easy to make, and you can use it with a whole variety of ingredients. And also just some of the simple vegetable techniques like pairing vegetables. And um, there's a very nice recipe for Chinese cabbage with a little salt pork cooked in stock. Really easy and delicious and healthy. Um, and another recipe of pak choi with dried shrimp. Um, so I think, um, you know, in terms of getting people, encouraging people to find new and creative ways to cook vegetables, they're great. And there's also a few dishes in the book that use the sort of spring onion oil flavour. Um, which is very important in this region. One of my favorites is a noodle dish with um, dried shrimps, spring onion oil. Um, incredibly easy to make and fantastically satisfying. You know, good for a quick lunch.
2: I think there was, what, a, a cold chicken recipe with the spring oil as well?
3: Spring onion oil, yes. Yeah. So very that nice that is oil. that
2: is like the, the go-to pantry ingredient of that region.
3: Yeah, well, I think I spring onions and ginger particularly important. Garlic, less so. But yeah.
2: You know, what's fascinating about reading a book like that, like this, is, is as you said, there's a story behind every recipe. Um, but without being there, you know, without being in that place and reading through this book, you feel transported. Absolutely. Uh, but without being in a place, you don't realize kind of the, the greatness and depth and, and agriculture that surrounds it. Again, you know, a lot of people know Shanghai, but then there's so much more. Uh Do you hope that people travel to this region more and more? And if so, what destinations aside from Shanghai should they be going to and where should they be eating?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely hope people go there because I think it deserves more recognition. And I also think the cuisine of this region offers kind of creative solutions to some of the issues facing us, like how to eat less meat and more vegetables, how to eat more sustainably and more healthfully. Um, And also, it's delicious and fun. (laughs) So aside from Shanghai, Hangzhou is a beautiful place the West Lake is gorgeous for sightseeing. And one of my favorite restaurants in the whole of China is there, the Dragonwell Manor, which serves some of the finest food in China. It's a kind of Chez Panisse of China, really, with this emphasis on sourcing radiantly fresh ingredients from the best providers in the countryside and supporting artisanal producers and that kind of thing. So Hangzhou, Yangzhou is a lovely sort of often forgotten um, old city with lots of old salt merchants, mansions and gardens you can explore. Um, and Suzhou also has these beautiful literary gardens. Um, so that's a nice... Place. I mean, the whole region really is has many um, interesting destinations with good food and beautiful scenery.
2: Well, oh, you can't be the land of Fish and rice without having you know that kind of agriculture and that kind of fertile ground to grow that upon. so I'm sure it's just this beautiful landscape.
3: Yeah, I mean the countryside is so gorgeous and in the different seasons and um, you know when you see the rice paddies full of water and then the rice growing and being harvested, um, yeah amazing.
2: So I mean if you're if you're going to Chinatown, any Chinatown around the world eating Chinese food, uh, leave that Chinatown. And and go on a trip and and look at regional cuisine, maybe even go to that region and see that there's that much more than a menu with a whole bunch of numbers that you call the dish by on the side. You know, there are stories, there are people, there are wonderful ingredients. Uh, There is a world to explore, and you can do that by reading Fuchsia's book, The Land of fish and rice thank you so much for being on
3: thank you very much
2: you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org I'm your host Michael Harlan Terkel hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3 cheers
1: thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org